The title of our sermon this morning, in case you're taking notes, is Exodus 12.2, A New Beginning and a New Year. Exodus 12.2, A New Beginning and a New Year. So today, the first day of the year of our Lord, 2023, let us consider its meaning. We've all seen many years go and new years come, but what does this really mean to us? Is it just another day? Or is it a day of recovery after a night of debauchery? Those seem to be the only choices that our thoroughly secular culture gives us. I'm blessed now to be able to spend New Year's Eve and New Year's Day with my wife and then with, with you, brothers and sisters. There was a time in my first career where I usually was not home on New Year's Eve. I, I think I always had to work. Um, I, I recall as a young patrol officer um, just being astounded on New Year's Eve. I didn't realize there were so many firearms in the city that I worked in. And it was like a war zone. In fact, it was so bad in those days, and this was a long time ago. This was back in the 70s. It was so bad in those days that as midnight approached, the watch commander would order all of the patrol cars to take cover. And we would go to parking structures or garages or bridges to uh, protect the police cars from falling projectiles. And I remember sitting in this parking structure with my partner and listening to what was going on, and it sounded like uh, Beirut in the 80s or Fallujah um, during the Gulf War. It was, it was astounding, the amount of automatic weapon fire we were hearing. These weren't firecrackers or fireworks going off. We knew what gunshots were, and it was just tremendous. And the dispatchers would be what we call blanketing calls. There were so many calls coming in that they cannot be assigned to radio cars. They would just blanket them. They would just put them out. Attention all units, shots fired here, shots fired here, shots fired here, man with a gun here, shots fired here, man with a gun here. And we were just completely overwhelmed. And that's New Year's. It's New Year's Eve. And I know all of you hear that. We chat, you know, about how our our New Year's Eve was. And many of you, I know, did not get much sleep because of fireworks maybe gunshots. Think, though, about how we usher in the new year. From my experience, it was, it was a very violent welcoming to a year. And later in my career, I was assigned to the air support division, and so I was in a helicopter, and we were not allowed to fly in a, south of a certain landmark in the city on New Year's Eve because it was too dangerous. Then around 10 o'clock, we would land, we'd go on runway alert, and we'd spend the rest of the night sitting there because we couldn't patrol. It was too dangerous. It got so bad that later, um, you know, it just just felt so wrong, I think, to so many of us that we basically abandoned the city. It was like, we we have to get out of the way because we can't control this. And finally, we said enough. And I was a SWAT sergeant at the time, and I spent New Year's Eve in an armored SWAT vehicle. And we would go and patrol these areas, uh, responding to these shots fired calls. Is this the way, though, that we are to usher in uh, the new year? I suspect that, that all of our views here regarding our society's approach to New Year's really are very much alike. And I'm talking about a secular view. Um, we know, don't, don't drive if you don't have to. Um, stay home, stay inside if you can. Makes sense. It does, it really does. But what does the Lord God have to say about New Year's? I think that's an important question that we need to ask. Does the Bible have anything to teach us about this? Well, yes, actually, it does. But as you can imagine... What the Lord has to say about New Year's has been drastically twisted by sinful man. And interestingly, when you look at New Year's celebrations throughout human history, there's always been a religious connotation to them. 
Now, I'm not talking strictly Christian. I'm talking religious in nature, many different religions, including, you know, if it's not Christian, then, of course, it must be pagan, uh, pagan religions or the, or the Jewish religion. Um, but really, there are deep and meaningful elements that God reveals to us in the Bible about New Year's. So would you turn in your Bibles now to Exodus chapter 12? We're going to be spending a lot of time in Exodus chapter 12 this morning. And as many of you undoubtedly know, here the Bible gives us an account of a great rescue. The Lord God rescued his people from slavery to an evil ruler. He raised up a leader from obscurity that was to deliver a message to this evil ruler. Let my people go. He refused. So the Lord God sent signs in the forms of plagues upon the land and, and the house of this evil ruler. After each plague, the evil ruler was given an opportunity to repent from his disobedience to the Lord and release the Lord's people. But his heart was hard and became harder against the Lord God and against his people, the Lord God's people. So the Lord sends a tenth and final plague upon the house and upon the land of the evil ruler. Verses 21 and 20 through 23 of Exodus 12 tell us, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now here we see an incident of the Lord's door of mercy. And we find this throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The door of mercy is something that, that God provides to his people where there's deliverance inside the door, but there's wrath and judgment outside of the door. Now skipping down to verse 29, we'll continue through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both of you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This brings us to the first point I want to make. Point number one, time is a creation of God that is used to his good purpose. Time is a creation of God that is used to his good purpose. We see this at the beginning of Exodus chapter 12, where the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, now 12.2 here, this is, a, this is our, our, our theme verse in this sermon. 12.2 says, the Lord speaking to Moses and Aaron, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So God commanded the Israelites to recalibrate their calendar in accordance to his great rescue of them from bondage in Egypt, an event so significant that it was to mark the start of a new year. And of this new year and the event surrounding it, the Israelites were commanded by God to instruct their children ever after. We see this in verse 27. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So this is what I want us to think about. When we talk about events in the Bible, 
without even consciously doing this, we, we contextualize the idea of time in the story. We do this with everything. Um, so New Year's Day, I think, is a good day to think about time. We're starting a new year, we're starting afresh, so, so to speak. Well, first off, we, we have to decide how do we define time? What is time? And it's remarkably difficult to define. Um, however, the, the Dictionary of Apologetics and Philosophy of Reason, they give this definition. It might be described as the relation that successive events in the universe have to each other. I think that's a good one because it, it gives us uh, uh, an idea of the use of time, what time's there for. And it seems impossible to describe the nature of this relationship in the universe without employing some notion such as before and after, right? And that's how we mark time, the past, the present, the future. And this is perfectly illustrated by the way we write our dates, by the use of B.C. and A.D. in the system of dating, and, well, the, the old system of dating, anyway. But there's a difficulty with time, and... and Augustine comments on this. He says, I know what time is until somebody asked me to define it. But in the Bible, both the Old Testament and New Testament, time is conceived as primarily a context for specific events rather than as an abstract dimension. And this, idea, this abstract dimension, we're going to talk about that in a bit. That's, that's how secular the secularists view time. It's an abstract idea. The Bible's idea is very different, and I want to differentiate between these two. Time, according to the biblical worldview, is inseparably linked to God's acts and mankind's response in the story of creation from beginning, from its very beginning, to its consummation. In other words, the flow of time in redemptive history is central to scripture, beginning with the creation and the fall, moving through the, the Israelite history, then the first advent of Christ, finally towards the culmination of history at the eschaton. And the Bible defines time as being created by God. It's part of creation. It's, it's, it's created on the first day of creation. We see this in Genesis 1, 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So the ancient Hebrew mind was not concerned with creation as in putting together something in a materialistic manner. We've spoken about this in depth on Wednesday night in our Genesis Bible study, how the ancient Israelites viewed cre the act of creating as, as told, the account given in the Bible. It's different from what we think. But they see creation as establishing order and function. And time is needed for order and function. Thus, its creation occurs at the very beginning of God's work. So as I said, this is very different from the modern secular or, quote, scientific, end quote, view of time, which is, as I said, abstract. It's the abstract idea of deep time. Now, what is deep time? Deep time is a concept of vast ages of prehistory, the notion that the earth and the universe are billions and billions of years old. It's a popular belief today and is considered by many people to be the mainstream scientific uh, position. However, I'm going to give you a different perspective of that. And this comes from the, the astrophysicist Dr. Jason Lyle. He writes about deep time. He thinks that this teaching, this secular teaching of, of deep time is really the false god of our age. He doesn't think evolution is. He thinks Deep time is the false god that we have to deal with. And this god, deep time, according to deep time's adherence, possesses the power of creation. Deep time has created everything out of nothing. Stars, systems, planets. Indeed, 
deep time has created man through his servant, evolution. Deep time has tremendous power to direct the course of events in the universe. Deep time creates and destroys species and civilizations at a whim. He gives life and he takes life away. He continually shapes the earth as he sees fit, changing deserts to lush gardens and gardens to deserts. Deep time existed long before man and will continue after man, or so we're told. Now, there's a Nobel laureate biochemist by the name of Dr. George Wald, and he said of deep time, and see if this does not sound like a person talking about his God. This is what Dr. Wald says. Time is the hero of the plot. Given so much time, the impossible becomes possible. The possible becomes probable. The probable becomes virtually certain. Only one has to, excuse me, one only has to wait. Time itself performs the miracles. He sees deep time as a miracle worker. Although deep time adherents, of course, would deny that they worship deep time as a, as a god or as an idol, their description of deep time really is in the terms of a deity. Think about how I described it and the things that, that are attributed to deep time. It's, it's the things we ascribe to the Lord God, right? But unlike the one true God who tells us that death is an enemy and is the consequence of sin, deep time loves death and uses death and pain to create. He does not listen to the cries of anguish of his creatures. He punishes the innocent along with the guilty and rewards evil and good alike. There's no forgiveness, no mercy to be found in deep time. All deep time has to offer is the certainty of death, final death, then extinguishment of all life. Deep time is not the living God, nor is deep time an aspect of God or a creation of God, or an ally of God. It's very different. We must understand that. Our society doesn't want to allow the division here that is obvious if we really look at it. So we find very many Christians that will take these very secular concepts that are not biblical and draw them in to the Christian faith and twist things to make it fit. And what is usually twisted? It's not the scientific stuff that gets twisted by us Christians that want to combine with the secular world. No, it's, we, we, we twist scripture. And we absolutely cannot, must not do that. So deep time really exists only as a concept created by the mind of man. He, it has no literal Existence And Dr. Lyle writes about this. The concept of vast ages of prehistory is not something that has been revealed to us by the living God, nor recorded by the history books of men. Rather, it is an invention of man to account for the characteristics of our present world without invoking biblical history. Biblical history includes the creation account. It includes the great flood. It includes everything that we find between the pages of our Bible. Dr. Lyle goes on to say that the modern version of deep time is traced back to a medical doctor in the 18th century, Dr. James Hutton. His ideas were further popularized by Charles Liel in the early 19th century. However, all of this is just merely a reimagining of, of a much older idea. This brings me to my second point. Point number two is time is an important element in redemptive history. Time is an important element in redemptive history. We looked at how time was created by God on the first day. <clears throat> the Genesis account also gives us the purpose for time. In Genesis 1.14, 
And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So this word seasons, I want to concentrate on that for a moment, is the Hebrew modim. It's also correctly translated appointed times. So when we read seasons, what do we think? We think of uh, summer, uh, winter, fall, um, spring, that sort of thing, right? But this is not the Hebrew concept. The Hebrew concept here refers to celebrations of God's redemptive acts, the appointed times, such as uh, were given in Exodus twelve twenty-seven. The sacrifice of the Lord's Passover is an appointed time. Do you see how time? We're told how time is to be used. It's for redemptive history. It's for us to live through redemptive history. Well, now, the relationship between time and eternity is perhaps not readily recognized as a fundamental issue of theology. But what could be more fundamental, I ask, than God's relatedness to time and space? Every major doctrine, really, I think, of Christian faith is expressed within the framework of time and eternity. So in the Bible, eternity is not an abstraction or timelessness. It's not a timeless concept. The living God reveals himself to us in the Bible as active in the flow of man's time. And this, this temporal, temporal uh, time, in other words, distinction between God and man is that he, God, is enduring and changeless in time. God possesses lasting time in contrast to man's experience of time as fleeting and passing. That's time for us comes and it goes in a moment. Here's a moment, no, that moment's gone. And, you know, you think about that and it'll just make you kind of crazy. But we can see... In the prayer of Moses, in Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4, this idea, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night." So the conception of eternity as timelessness, how we often think of it, was really the eventual outcome of an attempt to express Christian faith within the framework of Greek metaphysics. Now, Greek metaphysics, Greek philosophy, has tremendously impacted the Western world, and it has impacted how we express our faith also. And unfortunately, we're steeped in this, so we will view the Bible often through this lens and we must be aware of that and, and attempt to, to shift out of that. But it, but it is very difficult for us to do. So God's transcendence came to be considered in terms of his absolute otherness to time in, in Greek metaphysics. And this led to the philosophical idea of God as, as Kant said, an unknowable object of thought. So this is just a rejection of God's revealed word because we know God through his Bible. This is what he has given this to us for. So, as I often say, we need to be coherent and consistent in our thinking. This requires training. This requires effort on our part. It doesn't come easily. And, and this idea, what we were striving for, requires us, I would say, to reject the force combining of abstract philosophical concepts with the living God of the Bible who reveals himself to us in time and space in Jesus Christ. So we should not bend and shape God's unchanging word to conform to man's always changing conception and explanation for the world. No matter what a government bureaucrat tells you, no matter what a politician tells you, the science is not settled. That's not how science 
works. Science changes. It should always be changing. Science is a blessing from the Lord to us. God has blessed us with men and women with great minds who work in different fields of science for our advantage. So we're not anti-science, but we are students of God's word. So the Hebrews, the ancient Hebrews, this is what's interesting. They viewed historical time as a sequence of God's saving acts. And then the New Testament writers, who of course are what? They're Hebrew, right? And they're continuing the canon of scripture begun by Moses. For them, the final stage of History began with the advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, who is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of salvation. It's all moving along a timeline. So today, you know, of course, we mark the passing of an old year and the beginning of a new year at the stroke of midnight last. Our dividing of years, months, and days, this occurs because when it does for us, because we follow a solar calendar. So one year for us is a complete revolution of our planet Earth around the sun. This is what's called the Gregorian calendar that we use today. It was, came about um, in 1582 by, the, by uh, Pope Gregory XIII. It div- and it divides human time into two distinct segments. The time before Christ, B.C., and the time after Christ's coming, A.D., or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. Although modern secularists have attempted to wipe this out, if you read academic writings, B.C. and A.D. are frowned upon. They're not to be used anymore. Instead, there's B.C.E. before the common era instead of B.C. before Christ. Or there's C.E., the common era for Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. But here's the thing that the secularists can't do. The dividing line is still what? The coming of the Lord. They can call it whatever they want, but the mark in time is when God the Son came and dwelt with us. They cannot take that away. This is additional proof that time is one of the important vehicles by which God brings about redemptive history. This calendar, it improved, it was an improvement over the old calendar, it was the Julian calendar, which is attributed to Julius Caesar in around 46 BC. He came up with this calendar, or had his people come up with it, to unite the empire under one calendar. There were many different calendars, um, and also to better track the solar year. Um, so the Julian calendars are source for marking January as the start of the new year. That's, that, that, that's why it came about. Most other calendars in the world, the primitive ones, uh, more primitive, more ancient, they were based around the planting of crops. So the first year was usually late fall, early spring was when the new year occurred, when the, when the crops, the seeds would go into the ground. So, you know, many other societies besides ours have used solar calendars. Some have used lunar calendars, which measure time by the the phases of the moon. And there is a hybrid between the solar and the lunar calendars called the lunisolar calendar, which is what the ancient Hebrews used. Um, It measures years based on the solar year, but months are based on the phases of the moon. Now, when it comes to the ancient Jews and religious Jews today... It's hard to imagine a people with lives more closely bound to and regulated by the calendar. The Jewish calendar is dated from the day of creation, and as as the Jews calculated. So, 3,760 years and three months before the Anno Domini of the Gregorian calendar the Jews count time as when the world was created by the Lord God. So you have to take our year and add 
that year to it, you round up, and you get how many years we, we, have, we have traveled since creation, traveled down this timeline according to the ancient Jews and today's um, modern uh, religious Jews. Now, the months don't work because we're on different, completely different calendars. So, you, so we can't, you know, we're not coming up with an exact date. Okay, it was April, you know, 17th uh, that the world was, was uh, created or anything of that nature. <clears throat> but to mark his rescue, his redemption of his people from captivity, God changed the calendar. He took what had been the seventh month in the Israelite calendar, the month of Aviv, which was called Nisan after the Babylonian captivity. Jews had changed their calendar when they were taken away. But Aviv was changed to the first month of the year, as we see in Exodus 12, 2. There's an additional significance to this, to the month and day of the Passover of Exodus. It gives evidence to God's ordering of time to mark the redemption of his people. We go back to the first book, the book of beginnings, Genesis 8.4. We read, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So on the 17th day of the month, known as Aviv, by the Israelites when they were in Egypt, Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives, the remnant of mankind saved by the Lord. When he closed his door of mercy on them inside the ark, we're told that it is the Lord who closed that door. Moses didn't reach up and pull that hatch closed. No, the Lord closed it himself. Think about the physicality involved in that sounds like the visible Yahweh that we talk about. But anyway, again, we have this door of mercy. Deliverance inside wrath outside. This ark comes to a rest on a mountaintop. In the Passover in Egypt, according to Exodus 12, 6 through 7, occurred on the 14th day of this month, Aviv. And Moses writes, on this date, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. Now the New Testament clearly connects this very succinctly to Jesus' death on the cross and the feast of Passover when Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5-7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus foretells his death three times. And he foretells that after the third day of his death, he will rise from the grave. His death, remember, occurred on Passover. So these dates are given to us so that we may see that the one true God is a God who rescues and redeems lost people who he, he saves out of a fallen world facing judgment. This is what I'm saying. Let's go over this again a little bit slower. The ark and its inhabitants are delivered from the floodwaters of God's judgment three days after the date of which Passover will occur in the future. What happens in the New Testament three days after the Passover. Jesus Christ comes out of the tomb. The dates line up. Happenstance? Mere coincidence, you say? Ha! You're making much of nothing, Pastor Ken, you might think. No, brothers and sisters, the Lord is showing us something here. He's showing us how he uses time. He's showing us how everything ties together. That's what I really want you to see in this message I have for you this morning. There's no accidents. There's no chance. God is in control. A loving God who rescues and redeems is in control of everything. 
what we have here is evidence of God's meticulous planning along the timeline of human history. Imagine the timeline of human history running from there to there, running from the creation to the end, to the eschaton. God has placed every single redemptive act in a specific place on that timeline. It's not like, um, like some of our, our, our friends of a more um, uh, Arminian uh, uh, theology may say, well, it's just, you know, when it occurs, things line up and boom, God knows, you know, he knows what's going to happen here, so he gets things ready. So God's constantly, I, I picture God in this view, constantly running along the timeline of history with a whisk broom and a, and a little, uh, you know, thingamajig, what do you call it, the thingamajig? Dustpan, thank you. <laughs> the dustpan sweeping up after us and, and putting things in, in order in front of us. But that's not what the Bible tells us, right? I mean, we see it here with the flood. We see it with the Passover. We see it with Christ's resurrection, how they're all connected at specific times that line up. What does that tell you? It tells you that God's got all of this covered. As crazy as 2022 was, and as worried as we might be about 2023, we don't know the future, but God does. And God has placed you exactly where he would have you along this timeline of human history. Think about that. You, brothers and sisters, are not insignificant. You are the beloved of the Lord, the one who gave his life to redeem us. That's how significant you are. God could have placed you anywhere on this timeline he wanted to. But for his good purpose, you are here and now. And thank the Lord you are here assembling at Sovereign Grace with me this morning. This is God's decretive will that we're seeing, or some call it a secret will. It's not a chance or accident, like I said. This is God's will being acted out. Paul writes of this to the Ephesians in, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He writes about this connection of the Father's decretive will to bring in re redemption and reconciliation in time through the Son. And time is important here. Listen to what Paul says. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This brings us to my last point, point number three. Only God knows the future. Only God knows the future. What the future holds for us individually as well as collectively is known only to God. There's a long-standing tradition that we all know of across many cultures um, and uh, over years and millennia of making New Year's resolutions. I don't know if any of you make them. I remember as a kid making them. I thought that was really cool. It was like that was the big thing about New Year's Eve is I got to stay up late. I got to make noise. Of course, my parents would not let me have firecrackers. I could not have fireworks. And I certainly was not allowed to fire off a firearm in the backyard. But I was given a pot and a spoon, and I was allowed to go out on the front porch and bang that pot and make noise. So, and make a New Year's resolution. And in this one tradition, I think one could argue there's an element of the human practice of attempting to control the future. I'm not saying New Year's resolutions are bad, but let's just think about it a bit. New Year's resolutions have a, have a long history. They're believed to have begun about 2000 B.C. by the ancient Babylonians. 
who, as a matter of fact, at the same time, came up with the concept of the new year. And they had this 12-day religious festival called Akitu, where they would welcome the new year. It was a time to plant the crops. They would honor their gods, and they would pick new kings at this time. Then we fast forward through history. In the Middle Ages, the New Year's was important. This is where the knights, those men in armor, would renew their vows of chivalry on the New Year. So we can see a definite pattern of religious practices here that are connected uh, to the New Year, um, just in these, these real quick examples. And in the earlier years uh, of our country, New Year's resolutions were very, very popular and were often quite religious in nature. According to the biographer of Jonathan Edwards, the great American reformed theologian and preacher, about 1722, Edwards undertook what the biographer calls the Puritan practice of framing a set of resolutions to discipline himself. Edwards' resolutions and those of many in that era involved cultivating Christian Virtue, a very good thing. So Edwards was a very disciplined man. And what he was doing was a good, this is a good practice. And from what I read in my research, resolutions, New Year's resolutions, are apparently still popular today. I don't really know very many people that, that make them, but those who track such things say they're still very popular. But in the 20th century, Americans... New Year's resolutions began to change. They became less religious. They were less concerned with Christian virtue and more concerned about self-improvement. Although I would argue that religiosity remains at the core of the resolutions. It's just the God is different. It's now the God of self that's being worshipped, not the God of the Bible. But Jonathan Edwards found making these resolutions a profitable practice. But, you know, again, think of the focus that I mentioned here. Along these lines, we need to heed David's words in the 90, excuse me, the 65th Psalm. And in verse 1, we read David writing, Praises due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. So the Lord is to be our focus in all things, including vows and resolutions. And since we experience time in a linear fashion, that is one moment following another until a year, a decade, a century, a millennium has passed, it's not surprising that we think about what is to come and how we should best prepare for it. Now some of you undoubtedly will remember December 31st, 1999. Some of you, that was prehistory. Um, but there's this weird thing that happened then. It was called the Y2K bug. Now, I was in law enforcement at the time, and I had risen up to a certain rank. And we were very concerned about the Y2K bug. Not that we knew anything at all about computers, but all the people who knew about computers seemed like they were losing their gourd over the potential ramifications of this, where apparently the computer systems had been built to go up to 1999 and their internal clocks or whatever, the, the widget digits inside, couldn't flip over to the year 2000 and everything was going to maybe shut down. And there, there was no optimistic view that we were getting. So we had to prepare for the worst. It's like, What's going to happen if power shuts down, the lights go out, we can't communicate anymore? What if our radio systems go dead? How do we dispatch calls? How do we communicate with each other? We were concerned, and we had to be concerned. We couldn't just like, oh, it's not going to happen. So New Year's Eve, 1999, I found myself commanding the SWAT team in the downtown district as many, many people gathered to celebrate. It was, you know, time to party. The millennia was ending, or, or popular, popularly speaking, that was the thought. And then midnight came, and what happened? 
Nothing happened, right? And we laugh about it now. It's like, man, that, you know, that was kind of silly. But we didn't know. Now, there's those of you I know that have an IT background that maybe, you know, in 1999, you were like, I'm not, I, you know, that just got blown way out of proportion. But we deal with what we know, right? Just what we know, and, and that's it. That gives us a sense of trying to prepare for the future. I mean, we, we could say, I mean, a, a, a disaster could happen at any moment, right? But we can't be geared up for a disaster at every moment. We've got to kind of go off these things. Because there's times in the past when people felt safe and secure until disaster swiftly struck. Poo-pooing the idea that evil might soon befall us, even when there's evidence of it. Think of Daniel chapter 5 and King Belshazzar of Babylon throwing a drinking party the night the Medes and the Persians breached the walls of Babylon and kill him and topple his kingdom and take it over. John records the culmination of his heavenly visions in Revelation 21.5. He writes, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Our God has made things new in the past, and he promises to do so in the future. God flooded the earth and recreated the watery chaos of creation, yet he brought deliverance from the flood, emblematic of resurrection from death, life. This worldwide judgment as well as every other event in history, every other event in history, is precisely calculated for the salvation of God's people and the establishment, reestablishment of his sovereignty and proof of his sovereignty to all peoples, whether we see it or not, whether we believe it or not. That is the hard and cold or not, they're not cold facts, the hard and loving facts that God presents us in the Bible. He's showing us this. We have to see it. He wants us to see it. Otherwise, he wouldn't put it there, would he? It'd be the secret things of God that we're not to delve into, but they're not secret because he's laid it out. We just have to listen to what he has to say. And as the waters subsided from this great flood, the waters all over the world, Noah realized that God was recreating the world because he waits seven days. Seven days, the exact time of the original creation of the world to exit the ark. God has recreated the world. And what does Noah do? He worships the Lord. He builds an altar to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Beloved, then we are like Noah and his family after God brought the ark to rest. We're like Noah, excuse me, Moses and the Israelites after the deliverance of the first Passover. We're like Jesus' faithful band after the great sign of his resurrection, three days after Passover. So let us approach this new year that the Lord has brought us with a renewed dedication to him who has delivered us. Let us set our minds and our hearts in faithful obedience to the Lord and let us love each other just as he loves us.
Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your story is so magnificent. The things we find in your word, Father, that connect, that obviously can only be there by the placement of your divine hand. It cannot be put in there by human men writing at different places, different times through history, Father. Thank you. We just, we worship you. We adore you. We love you because you loved us first. And you've shown us these things. We have this evidence, this irrefutable evidence that what you have revealed to us is the truth, Father. I just ask that the Holy Spirit help us to interpret the things that we see in our world, the things we hear, that we interpret it in light of Scripture, Father. We know you give us many good things. Father, we give thanks for those good things. We appreciate them, and we appreciate the people who bring us these good things, Father. But let us always see these things as being from you, and thus must be seen in the light of what you have revealed to us, Father. Father, let us bind ourselves together and to you in a new way this year, Father. I ask that you renew our spirits, that we may see how precious it is what you have given us, this assembly of your holy ones that gather together, Father. Let us not forget those who are outside of our assembly, who may be, for all we know, they may be our brothers in Christ eventually. Even our bitterest enemies, Father, you have a plan for that we do not know. Let us act accordingly. Father, I give thanks for each and every one of these brothers and sisters who I am privileged to gather with every Lord's Day in your house here, Father. I give thanks for my brothers and sisters who watch online, Father. We ask for your blessings on them, those that cannot make it here. And Father, we ask for blessings for those who may hear this word at a later time on Sermon Audio, Father. And we pray for those that do not yet know Christ as their Lord and Savior, Father. We pray that Jesus be revealed to them as the door of mercy, the door for the sheepfold, the only door through which we may enter to be reconciled with you. Father, bless this day as we go on, and bless this year, Father. Keep, keep your beloved here safe. Hold them in the palm of your hands. We know, Lord, whatever befalls us, we are safe in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.